Let us turn back to the chapter we read a moment ago in John's Gospel and the second chapter. John chapter 2 and we'll take the first version onwards as our text this morning. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. We're coming now to the little town of Cana in Galilee as we travel through with the Lord Jesus Christ in his own land of Israel. Now exactly where Cana was, we are not entirely sure. Obviously it's in Galilee. There were other places also called Cana out with Galilee. But we think it was north of Nazareth and nearer towards Capernaum than Nazareth. But still some way to the west of Capernaum. There are two possible sites and we're not entirely sure which one is the Cana of Galilee referred to here in John. But if you can think of a rough map of Israel with the Mediterranean coastline, and then on the other side it bounded by the Jordan and the Sea of Galilee, and then going down the Jordan River to the Dead Sea. Well, Capernaum is near the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, on the northwestern shores. Well, if you were to go down to the southernmost tip of the Sea of Galilee and move westward from there, there you would come to Nazareth. So somewhere between, if you were to draw a line from Nazareth towards Capernaum, somewhere on that line nearer to the Nazareth end, we have where we think the town of Cana was. And we're going to call this place A town of two miracles. A town of two miracles. It is especially well known and associated with the first of Jesus' miracles, which we have read here in John chapter 2, the turning of the water into wine. In fact, John is the only one to record this miracle. It is not mentioned in any of the other gospel accounts. You will find this same place, Cana, mentioned in the Old Testament, but really just in passing. And in the Old Testament, it is spelt with a K at the start and with an H at the end. And it is mentioned as some of the places allocated to the tribes in the book of Joshua. So it's only mentioned in passing in the Old Testament. It would have been then an easy place to overlook But it is somewhere we cannot overlook as we're looking at the land of Jesus because it has been forever immortalized in the pages of Scripture by two particular visits that Jesus made to Cana of Galilee. So we're going to pay our visit to this Galilean village. And if we were walking up towards this town, even as... At the time of this gospel record, you begin to hear the noise. You begin to hear the noise of celebration and happiness as there's a wedding feast in full swing. And Jesus and his disciples arrive 
in the midway point almost of this wedding in Cana of Galilee. So we have just these two miracles in Cana to consider today. Our first point then is the first miracle in Cana, which of course is turning the water into wine at the wedding. Just a few days after calling his first batch of disciples, chapter 2 says, three days after that was done, Jesus arrives at a wedding in Cana, or arrives in Cana and is invited to a wedding. And you know the account. After some point, Mary comes to him and says to him that they have run out of wine for the guests. And Jesus replies with what seems like a, a standoffish sort of Reply, but is not woman. What have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Despite that apparent rebuke, Mary goes ahead and speaks to the servants and says to them, Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. And of course, Jesus tells them to take the six water pots that were used for ceremonial washing and fill them to the brim with water. And we are Given the measurements in firkins, that's not a measurement I'm terribly familiar with. Perhaps you are, I'm not. But firkins are about nine gallons is a firkin, or about just over 40 litres, if you prefer your volume in metric. And so we're thinking of a total of, say, 200, 250 litres here, or up to 50, 55 gallons worth of fluid in these six water pots. Now we might think that's an enormous amount, and it is, but remember a wedding lasted for days in these countries and were commonly enjoyed by hundreds of people over the full course of a week. And after brimming the pots, then the servants are told to draw out some of the water that has just been filled in these pots And offer this water to the governor of the feast, the person who's in control of the practicalities of the feast, for taste testing and approval that it might then be served to the guests. And of course the governor instantly declares that this is better wine, this is the best wine. And probably good-naturedly he summons the groom to come and ask him why he has kept the better wine until last. And I think that... As well as being the first miracle then. This is famous for being the first miracle. But if we can use languages to accommodate what we mean. It also seems to be. Perhaps what is the most unnecessary of the miracles. If you know what I mean. There is no absolute necessity. In the water being turned into wine. Nobody is dying of thirst. Nobody is hungry in the wilderness. Nobody's been toiling all night and caught no fish even. This appears to be a miracle not born out of any necessity. I'm sure that it happened before that a wedding had run out of wine in Galilee or in Judea in these days. It was no doubt socially very embarrassing, but hardly an emergency. And yet this is how Jesus chooses to begin his miracles. In a social context, in a, with a miracle that, that very few people even noticed had happened. The guests were 
unaware largely that the wedding had run out of wine. They were unaware that Jesus had spoken to the servants. They were unaware that the water was being taken to the governor. They just carried on with the wedding. Only the servants and Jesus' own disciples, and we assume also Mary, knew what had happened. At least at the first. So this miracle is in our eyes a most distinguished miracle. The first miracle we all know was the turning of the water into wine. It's a social miracle. Done in a social setting, I mean. And it's one that we are told in verse 11 manifests forth the glory of Jesus and draws out the faith of the disciples. And yet it was almost unnoticeable. When the problem arises, Mary wants Jesus to to meet the hour of need. For three decades nearly, probably, she has been waiting, wondering for when her son will claim his destiny as the true king of Israel, as the son of David, announce himself publicly to the nation as her longed-for Messiah and true king. When will it happen? And she thinks she sees an opportunity here now. You can imagine as he entered into adulthood, throughout his late teens and early 20s, she was always wondering, when's it going to happen? And I think that's what lies behind her hint to Jesus. They have no wine. Here's an opportunity. Yeah, you can do something about this. This is a great way to begin. And she seems to think that this is the chance. That this is now the timing for him to be public. Because he is more public now. He is a rabbi. He has disciples who have begun to follow him. He has entered into the feast as a rabbi. He has a standing. He is now no longer an unknown, obscure worker with wood in Nazareth. Take center stage, he says to him. And Jesus refuses. His hour has not yet come. And that seems a bit odd, doesn't it? When he says to her, my hour has not yet come, one moment. And then just a few moments later, he starts off by performing his first miracle. And these two things don't seem to sit together. Did he mean not absolutely yet, but give me a minute or two and then my timing will have come and leave the timing to me? That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus was not now going to announce himself publicly with a claim to be the Messiah. That's what he was saying. Even with the miracle that he will perform, only a few will notice. And that wasn't an accident and it wasn't a mistake. It was deliberate and carefully done. Five disciples have been called so far. However many servants are attending to the water pots. And Mary. And no one else knew. Everyone else would taste the wine after the governor. Everyone else would probably notice this is far better wine than we had before. Everyone else would enjoy the blessings and the benefits of it. And they would be none the wiser. That their Messiah and their true king had done this for them. 
They were not to be confronted by the demands of Jesus, even as they were tasting the wine of Jesus. His hour was not yet come. So what then is the point in him beginning his miracles and showing, manifesting his glory to his disciples if almost nobody notices? Well, of course, it is only almost nobody who notices. His disciples notice. And they notice in this something of the glory of his person. And that is important. The glory of Christ in doing this drew out their faith towards him and they rested upon him. They believed on him. And so Jesus in this first miracle, provides wine for all at the wedding. And by this miracle, he allows a happy occasion to continue unhindered, unspoiled, uninterrupted, with no shame. But in this seemingly ordinary event, there is more to be seen when you have the faith to notice it, like the disciples. There were hints enough for everyone. They were in this wedding. You would notice a rabbi, a young striking rabbi, with some followers coming to join the wedding party. You would notice the subtle but distinct change in the taste of the wine that came in the second half of the wedding enjoyments. You may have overheard the natural enough questioning of the groom when he was called by the governor of the feast. And the same question would have been on the lips of many at the tables of the wedding feast. Why you have kept the best to last. I wonder about the groom himself when he was questioned. What did he say? What could he say? Had he been privy to the fact they were running out of wine and now suddenly they weren't? And now suddenly that better wine. Did he go and find out from the servants? Look what happened here. Where did you get the wine? Did they explain to him? It was a new rabbi. He, he just told us to draw out water. And it became wine. And we don't know anything more than that. Did he go to find out from Jesus? Did word begin to spread after that perhaps? <clears throat> I wonder if he knew just of the shortage. But not of the solution. And in the busyness and excitement of the day. Did he let it go? Well, it's sorted now, it's fixed itself and asked no more questions. Did he ever find out just where the good wine had come from or who had performed the miracle? And I think this is part of the point here. This is so much more low key than you would have expected. If you or I were sitting down to write the script, of how Jesus would begin his miracles. This isn't how it would happen. It was lower key than we would expect it. Lower key than Mary hoped for. So low key that most people missed it. Even though they all benefited from it. But not everyone missed it. And that's important. Some would come to realize that what they had enjoyed was actually the work of the miracles of their Saviour. And that's often how it is with the works of Jesus. The benefit may come, 
before we have realized the benefit, before we have understood what Jesus has done for us. There are some, and Jesus simply joins himself to them, as it were, in a wonderful wedding of soul and saviour. Jesus simply provides better things for them, weans them off their taste for the world and on to better things. And they scarcely know that anything has happened to them. Taking away their taste for the inferior wine of their previous life, bit by bit, reveals himself to them. And we have often heard that if you've heard someone give their testimony of how they became a Christian. You'll have heard some people, not everyone, but who can testify that they were given new tastes. That is, they were given new enjoyments. They began to enjoy gospel things. They began to enjoy being in church. And they began to enjoy reading the Bible. And they began to enjoy listening to Christians talk. And they began to enjoy praying. And they began to enjoy the thought of Sunday And they began to find less enjoyment of the things of the world and less enjoyment of the things that had been their idols and their excitements before. And they're not sure what's going on at first and they're not sure why there's been this change. And they've hardly noticed what's happened, that Jesus has given them new wine, that they have been converted. And sometimes, like these wedding guests, perhaps it is only after the event That someone looks back on what's happened and says, you know, that was the beginning of Jesus' miracle in my life. I hardly noticed at the time, but that's how he began with me. And dear friends, perhaps even amongst ourselves, as a gathering here, as a congregation this morning, there are some of you, and you're somewhere along this line, this experience, this this, experience, pattern in your own life being given a taste for better wine oh we pray and long that it might be so that some of you here would have a taste for better things and Jesus if you like has come into the wedding with you and began to transform things subtly quietly in the background and you hardly knew he was there and you haven't realized yet maybe even the profound change That Jesus has wrought. But you will if he has begun a good work. He will bring it on. Maybe that's where some of you are right now. In the midst of the enjoyment. Of the taste of new wine. Tasting and seeing. That God is good. And I know. Friends. As a congregation here. How much we long to be encouraged. With converts. But we can also be looking for the dramatic sometimes. Waiting for someone to step from darkness into light. In a moment. But do not abandon expectation. Do not give up hope. Take a lead from the disciples here. Because they were watching what was happening. And they weren't disappointed with it. It was low key. But they saw the glory of Jesus in it. And they believed the more upon him as a result. Now they were already believers. They were already disciples and followers. But this served to strengthen their faith. When they saw Jesus working in the background. 
Their faith wasn't affronted or offended that it hadn't been more to the fore, that he hadn't taken centre stage, that he hadn't announced himself, that he hadn't called everyone to come round the water pots and wait and you see what I'm going to do. They were content to see his glory, his glory manifested in this little, almost unnoticed miracle. In fact, is this not already your portion as a believer? Surely the Christian here knows this. Whenever you see someone and you're watching and they seem to be developing a taste for Bible things. They seem to be listening a bit more carefully. And they seem to be wanting to listen quietly in the back of Christian conversations. They seem to have an eagerness that you never noticed before. What do you do? You rejoice. You say, I recognize these things. I know what is happening to that soul as they're being drawn into the gospel. Perhaps the person themselves doesn't yet realize what Jesus is doing for them. Neither did many at the wedding. But a few early disciples, just these five who were there at this time, they saw it. And they recognized in it the glory of Jesus. And it increased their faith. And so, friends, let me make these challenges to you this morning as a congregation. First, have you a taste For the good wine of the gospel. You might not have noticed how it was that you acquired that taste. But have you a taste for the gospel? You might not be sure when it happened. But now have you a taste for the gospel? Do you prefer the things of God and the things of Jesus. To the inferior tastes of the world. And the flesh and the devil. Oh, well, if so, then you know what has happened. The miracle worker of Cana of Galilee has visited your heart and has joined in the wedding celebrations of your soul. You might have thought, that's impossible. You can't tell me that this is me converted because I'm beginning to enjoy Bible things and because I'm loving prayer because I'm feeding upon the word. Surely if I was converted out of notice, surely Christ was stood on center stage and made himself known to me and obvious to me. But not always so. It often, often takes time for a soul to realize what has happened. After all, you would think that if you were drinking miracle wine, miracle wine that had been water, you would think that you would have noticed Straight away. That if you'd been there, if you were present in the very building, in the very, under the tent, or in this open air, wherever it was in Cana, the very time when Jesus of Nazareth began his very first miracle, if you'd been actually present, you would think you'd have noticed it. But many at first did not. Have you a taste for this? Secondly, If you've been privileged to witness such a miracle of the power of Jesus giving someone their first taste of gospel things. If you've been watching someone being drawn in 
May that steady your faith as a believer. That's something precious to be a witness to. May that ground your faith ever more firmly upon Jesus, that he is still saviour and still saving souls. And thirdly, if you have no taste at all for gospel things here today, if this watery wine, if the watery wine of the world is your chosen wine, then what a sorry state you are in, friend. Poor soul, plead for the presence of Jesus and for a new taste for the good wine of the gospel. Because if you have no enjoyment in Bible things, you are tasteless. You cannot understand what you are missing. So all this, the quietest you would say, as well as the first Miracle of Jesus happening in little Cana of Galilee. But there's a second miracle connected with this place as well. And we have to turn a few chapters forward to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And read again a few verses there. From verse 46. Jesus has just been left leaving from Samaria but... We'll read from verse 46. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman said unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and went his, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then he inquired of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. And after the miracle at Cana, turning the water into wine, Jesus went down from there to Capernaum with his mother and his disciples and his brethren. But we're told he didn't stay long at Capernaum. Then there was coming up the Passover in Jerusalem. So Jesus and his disciples go to Jerusalem. This is the first of the Passover celebrations Jesus has with his disciples. And there when he was at the temple, Jesus cleansed the temple and cast out the money changers and those who were selling animals And at that time, he prophesied that if they would destroy the temple, he would raise it in three days, speaking to them of the temple of his body. And during the time in Jerusalem, not only did he perform that cleansing and uh, make that prophecy, but he also, we're told, did many miracles. We read that at the end of chapter 2 at verse 23. 
It was also during that visit to Jerusalem that Nicodemus came to visit him by night. We missed out chapter 3, of course, but that's what happens in John chapter 3. After the Passover is over, Jesus again leaves Judea. And he chooses to go through Samaria. And he meets there the woman at the well. And uh, after challenging her, she, of course, is converted, goes back, tells many in her city about him. They believe. The city comes out. They entreat Christ to come back. He stays there for a few days. And many, many souls in that Samaritan city are converted. He's still, of course, heading from Judea up back the way. But he went via Samaria. After being in Samaria for these days, he comes back into Galilee. He deliberately avoids Nazareth his hometown, and then returns instead to where he had done his first miracle, to Cana of Galilee. Now, it may be there was some possible lodgings here. One of his early disciples was Nathaniel. And John tells us later that Nathaniel was actually from Cana of Galilee. But whilst he had come to Cana, word had spread around the district very quickly that the one who had done miracles in Jerusalem has come back to Galilee. And we need to just catch up on the context. A nobleman, we think a courtier of Herod's palace, has heard about Jesus' miracles. The quiet miracle of the wine, though it had been done quietly, would eventually have spilled out and been spread around, and people would have heard it and probably written it off as an unusual thing if it happened at all. But they would have begun to hear The miracles at Jerusalem seem to have been many and manifold and evident. They would have carried more weight, especially as pilgrims would have returned from Jerusalem after the feast of the Passover back to their own areas. Many of the Galileans would have been back home before Jesus because Jesus had stopped in Samaria for a number of days. So many of them would have come back. They would have heard... Not only that Jesus had done the miracles, but that Jesus also had left Judea and was going back to Galilee. Word eventually reaches Capernaum, and in Capernaum there's this nobleman, this courtier of Herod's palace, who has a little child who is very sick. And he takes action. He determines that he's going to find where in Galilee Jesus is and beg him to come and save his son's life. No medicine has been helping. No human hope remains for this family. But he pleads with Jesus for his son's life. And he begs him to come to Capernaum and heal him. And the scene is set then for the second miracle of Cana in Galilee. And this miracle is remarkable too because in one sense we call the second miracle of Cana. But where does it take place? The little child who is healed and when he is healed is still in Capernaum. But Jesus who is doing the healing, well, he is in Cana. Both of the miracles of Cana have a connection. I wonder if you notice it. Both miracles were unseen. In the first case, the miracle was unseen, but the benefit was enjoyed by everyone at the wedding. But they hadn't seen the miracle itself. In this case, the miracle is unseen and the father is called to believe without seeing the results. 
And that is the key to the second miracle of Cana, to believe without seeing yet the results. To believe and trust Jesus without seeing the fruit of this miracle. And that was what Jesus said in verse 48. Notice he's talking not just to the nobleman, but to the whole gathering. It's in the plural. Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. And the implication is that you ought to believe even without seeing the signs and wonders. To believe because Jesus said. To believe because it was Jesus. That was the faith that he was looking for. And this then is a miracle of faith. A miracle of this man laying hold upon Jesus. His faith in Jesus is growing all the time. Initially it had been a desperate hope, a last hope, that somehow his son would be saved. And it extends to action to going to seek Jesus in Galilee. And then it is expressed as a belief that if Jesus will only come and visit, that his son will be saved. Jesus calls him to a higher expression of his faith still. And he tells in this man's hearing, you know, you should believe even if you don't see the miracle. And it's an important point to believe before you see the miracle. Or even without seeing the results of the power of Christ. To trust him and take him at his word because it is Jesus. That's the lesson. And then comes a test. And the man pleads, come down ere my child dies. Jesus says, go thy way, thy son liveth. Can you believe although you haven't seen it? It was a hard test. Imagine having to leave Jesus. Jesus was his hope. To actually leave Jesus and go back. What if he go back and it hadn't worked? What if he go back and this child was even sicker than before and there wasn't time to go and get Jesus and say, you really need to come now. To return home without Jesus was difficult. But Jesus had said, hadn't he? You should believe without seeing the signs and the wonders. But you can still believe. And that's what this man did there in verse 50. Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. Notice his faith is later confirmed and increased. When he discovers the exact timing of his son's healing from the servants who come to tell him at all as well, he inquires of what time it was. It was the seventh hour. He knows from that that's exactly when Jesus says it. And he believed. He already believes. He's already, we already told that he believed Jesus and he went. But now he believes even more. There is a good progression to mark. And a helpful one for anyone here struggling to know, have I faith? 
Or how could I have faith? Are you looking to begin your faith with what you can see or with what Jesus says? Jesus always puts first what he says before what you can see. Begin your faith with the word of Jesus. After that, you can test the word of Jesus. He has no problem in his people testing his word, proving the truth of his word. But faith begins not without experiences, but with Jesus' commands and promises. Jesus says he will forgive your sins if you trust in him. But you want to say, how can I know my sins are forgiven? Do you want to see the marks of forgiveness first before you believe? It doesn't work that way. If you want to see the fruit of forgiveness beforehand and then believe in Jesus, you have the order the wrong way around. So here in both of these miracles, there's a challenging of what we see of our sight. What we cannot see. Can we believe it? Is seeing still believing? Or can we believe on what is unseen? Faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Jesus is drawing us away from what have been our natural senses, our way of judging everything and the world around us. From our comfort zones, we are taken away. We judge the world by what we feel and what we experience and what we see and what we taste and what we consider and reckon. Jesus is asking us, engage a new sense, a sixth sense of faith in me. Will we trust him? You see, if Jesus can heal a dying boy who is dying miles away, out of sight, From either him or his father. If Jesus can give him life. Then he can also give life to a dying soul unseen in your heart. Just because you cannot actually see it happening. That doesn't affect the power of Jesus to do it. That doesn't stop him. Let me take you back again to the earlier miracle in Cana of Galilee. You didn't have to see the miracle happening to taste and enjoy the wine. Faith is not by sight. And both these miracles in Cana, as the early miracles recorded, first one and second one recorded, they are miracles that emphasize that faith is not by sight. Will you trust him? Jesus says today, don't trust your eyes. Don't trust your feelings. Trust me. Trust my words. Believe on me and your soul shall live. Do you believe on him? Will you believe on him? Do you want to see evidence first and then you'll believe upon him? No, friend. That is a mistake. You lay your trust upon him. You may then look for fruits. You may then seek uh, to test his word, but you must trust him first. Look at what happens there in verse 53. The father believes and his whole house. 
the anxious mother converted. The well-traveled faithful father converted. The servants who came to tell him the good news converted. Even the little boy who was dying, all the house believed, his whole house. All the blessings of faith. Faith that began in Cana of Galilee. Oh, what it teaches us. Unseen, yes, faith is the evidence of things not seen. But that doesn't mean it is not real. Blessings of true happiness, blessings of true health. These are the things found in Cana of Galilee. As we look at the work of Jesus in that place. Is that what you see? Is that what you know? Have you tasted and seen that God is good? Have you yourself been taken from the very brink of death into newness of life by this wonderful, wonderful Saviour whom we commend to you all once more? May he bless his word. Let us pray. Thank you.